from Sport Unlocked, the week in sports news. This week with Martin Ziegler from The Times, Tarek Panja from The New York Times and Graham Dunbar from The Associated Press. Thieks, what the devil are you doing in Istanbul? I think you're sitting in front of a, a glamorous advert there at, at the airport, it looks like. What are you doing there, Zeke's? Uh, yeah, I've just been, uh, been here the last two days. It's the, uh, the, the the Champions League draw, Europa League draw, and uh, a host of sort of the UEFA meetings, club competitions committee, and also the European Club Association board, which has um, been talking about things such as where the money is all going to go once this new Champions League comes in in 2024. And where is that money going? Did you get any, any clearer... Uh idea because that's the next big fight we've got the new tournament as you mentioned from 24 the new format where where is this money going have you got any any ideas while you've been there well i think it's like battle battle lines drawn um everyone is competing for their own interests so if you speak to somebody from one club they obviously the bigger the club the the, the bigger the share they want if you're a smaller club then they want more equitable shares between, um, for example, the Europa League getting a bigger slice compared to the Champions League and so on. So I just think it's going to be a, a bit of a sort of um, a, a battle, really. And it's interesting to see who comes out on top. It's just whether the, the Super League collapse has shifted things away from the big clubs somewhat. Um, we'll be speaking to Akihi Rialati later. He's the... Um, Chief Executive of HJK Helsinki and um, Vice Chairman of the ECA and sits on UEFA's Club Competitions Committee. So uh, he's got some interesting thoughts too. But uh, what do you think, Graham? You know, something you follow closely, the, the, the money. Um, where, where do you think this is going to end up? And has the Super League made a, a big difference? Well, the Super League gave an opportunity for the ECA to remake itself a little and change the democratic structure um, and give the lower tier clubs like uh, Achi's uh, club in Helsinki more of a say. I'm not sure that happened. I'm not sure that opportunity was taken. Now we talk about, they will talk about solidarity. Some clubs, the European leagues especially, talk about more solidarity payments. That, that, and a few hundred million euros are paid each year from Champions League revenues to in solidarity. But really they're pennies on the pound when you think how much a, a lower mid-table Premier League club will get compared to 100 million euros that the you know the big four, the big six will be getting. So more solidarity will be good. Can it close the uh, the wealth gap? Can it promote competitive balance? Um, talking about so money, sure. this we have to be clear what we're talking about here as well. It's going to be the biggest purse in European football history, right? This new TV contract that they're negotiating. Martin, we've both written about it quite a lot. It's, it's, it's a lot more, or certainly more significant than, than the current one, right? Yeah, not quite as big as I thought UEFA hoped was, was going to happen. I think they, I mean, a year ago, they were talking about, oh, will they get a 40% uplift? I think it's going to be more like 20, 25 by the time all the deals are done. Um, but still, yeah, huge amount of money, four and a half, billion euros a year and um, it's how, how you, you slice and dice that um, do the, the big clubs obviously you know, they, they, they drive the interest should they get more of the land share I think most people are interested in competitive balance would think, would think probably not 
Um, but I mean, you know, that's that's what led to the Super League, isn't it? So there's a sort of tightrope for UEFA to walk. Graham, do you think um, UEFA is actually interested in competitive balance, though? You've written about this in April, the new FFP, for example. Is FF, is uh, competitive balance that important? Well, are they interested or what What can they actually do in the real politic of the situation? How much can they actually achieve? I mean, this has been the, the tension between the UEFA and the clubs for decades is trying to do what's right, but also trying to do what you can when the threat of a Super League has always been hanging over um, the situation. It's it's about what the, the clubs who have the influence within the ECA, are, do they want this Champions League revenue to feed the ecosystem, to make the clubs at the bottom healthier, to feed down to the pyramid for a healthier system? Or is it about a cash grab to to pay their salary bills, to pay their debts? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the 100 million euro question. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the other thing is, is this coefficient funding model, which um, was brought in 2018, I think that's right, which, which I think gives 30% of the market pool now basically is allocated a, on a club's 10-year performance in, in Europe. So, you know, those clubs that have achieved success get more. Um, I th- there is certainly a, some feeling in the in the ECA that that should either be sort of downgraded or scrapped and altogether. But um, is that is that a dangerous move to do that? Well, I think that coefficient funding was just a real heist by a certain group of the wealthiest clubs in 2016. This was approved at a time when UEFA didn't have a president between Platini and Chefferin. But if you look at the that coefficient table now and where the money goes, you'd think of Liverpool as a successful club, which would probably do well in that coefficient table. But they're surprisingly low down on it because they, you know, Klopp's first full season, uh, 2016-17, Liverpool weren't in Europe. And it takes a long time to build your place back up in that coefficient table so that year on year, Liverpool are already getting 8, 10 million euros less than Real Madrid, who are just locked in at the top. It's very, very difficult to improve your position in that 10-year table. And it's just a built-in advantage to Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern, Juventus, year after year after year. But, you know, looking at it, I guess, from, from their point of view, the European football has never been a level playing field as well. The idea that it's just... Champions League or European income that, that you know, uh, feathers the nest of these big clubs probably isn't correct. You know, you look at domestic television rights, the Premier League is, as we've said many times, is now in an absolute league of its own. The the income is so much more significant than, than any of the other domestic leagues where these so-called big clubs are, are playing in. You know, you could kind of see, see the pressure uh, on on them to try and keep up with with the Premier League. So you know, when you look at it in the round, it's how else can they keep up with the Premier League? Because if 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 this doesn't happen, I'm I'm not saying this is a good thing to to give these big clubs more money. I'm just thinking from a from a broader sense of competitive balance. We keep saying that, or or interesting games. Let's get rid of the word competitive. We just want to watch games where one team might be able to beat the other one, right? Now, if 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 this doesn't happen 
the Premier League is so far ahead of the others. We might just see a procession of English clubs winning European competitions as well, because as we've seen, success almost always is defined by how much money you can spend on players, be it salaries or transfer fees. On the other hand, you know, football's had these sort of cycles, hasn't it? I mean, you could like say that about Italy in, in the 1990s, for example, you know, Spain in, um, in the first decade of the century. So I suppose there's a thing is, do you, do you mess with it too much or do you, do you just accept that you know, one country is going to have dominance for a bit of time, then things will change? Or is the fact that actually, if you don't do anything, the English clubs are going to dominate in perpetuity? The English clubs could dominate, but at least we're seeing that um, in England there is, you know, it's a big six. Manchester United and Arsenal are outside of the Champions League. There is the and you can imagine that, you know, Wolves have been close, West Ham have been close to breaking in. Newcastle maybe will soon. There is turnover in who are the four Champions League clubs. There is the potential for turnover in um, in England. That's not really happening in in Spain at all. Atlanta broke in a little while in Italy. But the the, the the Premier League is genuinely competitive, uh, I think, at that level. Um, that's, but clearly the, the Premier League, his, his own domestic broadcast revenues, are such a massive advantage that, yes, I will concede that it's looked upon jealously by the rest of Europe with, I with think, good reason. I mean, the stats kind of bear it out a bit. I found something um, quite striking with the, with the transfer window this year. The team that spent the third most on players across Europe is newly promoted Nottingham Forest. I think that that in itself is remarkable and that is not through owner funding, I don't think. That is, you could maybe describe it as reckless, is spending all, all, all of the money that they're likely to get from just being in the Premier League. Now, um, you know, a newly, newly promoted team in Serie A, for example, Will, would earn, I, I would, I would guess one fifth of of the income Nottingham Forest will have just from being in the Premier League. So only only Chelsea and and the trolley dash Barcelona have embarked on by selling, you know, the family China. It, it's been more than the Nottingham Forest, and this this trend I think is is interesting. It's here for, it's here for a, for a long time, as far as I'm concerned. Whether I'm not saying it's good or bad, maybe the Premier League will be the world's league and. And the others will be feeding it. I mean, who knows? What, what makes me a little bit sad as a sort of, you know, purist nostalgic, you know, who grew up watching European football where Anderlecht or, uh, you know, were as, as big a club as, as, as anyone else. You want to see those kinds of clubs have a chance to succeed. But if you're a mid-table champion um, and you break through, can you keep your players? Is the promise of the Champions League revenue you could get enough that you can have a long-term investment plan? Or is it a quick sale? Are you, are your, is your squad picked over by the truly wealthy clubs and you don't have a chance to build organically? I mean, the system is, says, oh, the dream is open to anyone. You can build organically. But, you know, realistically, a club that made a breakthrough with, a, you know, a, a, a good core of players, maybe Ajax 2019 is the best example. They all left very quickly. They didn't build. I mean, to Ajax's credit that they've come back so strongly since, but it's the way the system is, that Ajax team breaks through in 2019 and it's picked over immediately 
and then they have to go through another phase to rebuild. I think that's that's very sad. And maybe if Ajax had the promise of more revenue um, instantly for one season in the Champions League, they could make a long-term plan to retain that squad. Uh, here's uh, my chat with Aki Realati about uh, various financial issues. Um, interesting stuff, too. Everybody knows that the Champions League is driving the value and uh, mainly money coming from the big markets. But when we talk about competitive balance, we have to be very careful because it's not the European competitions that are killing the competitive balance. It's the domestic TV rights of the biggest five leagues. So if we really want to talk about competitive balance, then we would have to discuss, which I think would be a really interesting discussion, that should the five top leagues also give solidarity for their domestic broadcasting deals, because that's also, you know, that's where the competitive imbalance is, is, is created, is the domestic TV rights of the five biggest leagues. So that is a much more interesting question, which I think you journalists should sometimes raise up. So uh, when I look at the system here, if it feeds to all and, uh, and everybody is involved, all the countries, um, and that's not the root cause of, of competitive balance. It's not the European Games, it's the domestic TV rights. So, so um, obviously, that's something that has to be looked at. Uh, obviously, we have to be look for the welfare for the whole system as such. Last cycle, there was a remarkable development for that, uh, thanks to ECA uh, for the for the solidarity, especially from the, the, the gap five top leagues to the uh, on the benefit for the fifty others, which means that all of them will get pretty much double than they did last year. Um, then, I think. There are elements, and this is a personal opinion, this is not, a, now I'm not talking on behalf of ECA, that we have to also look what is the uh, pillars within the different one. This doesn't make the huge difference, and these are not the root cause for competitive balance, but I think it, it's always important to review where the market pools, coefficients are as important than, for example, you know, winning it on a big. This is the, the penultimate year of, of the, the, the existing 32-team format for the Champions League. How do you think the, the, the new sort of 36-team Swiss model, do you think it's going to be ex an exciting change? I think it's fantastic change. I was, from the first, first minute, very much in favour of it, and I was very happy that it got, it got introduced. It gives more... Um, I think it gives more excitement to the, until the end. It gives probably better, you know, games, and uh, it's a new exciting form. And then if you look now, if you look even the, you know, the first sales of TV rights, like in the US, it's 150 percent up, mm. and, and, and 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 it's it's just great reception from the from not just for the TV market but from the fans that it it gives much more exciting one table. So um, so um, I think it's a good. Good improvement. Overall, I think you know. I come. I I'm the CEO of one of the smallest clubs who play in the in the, in the group phases, and uh, for me, both the system that is more inclusive, plus the distribution has in the last six years done way better than it was ever before. Uh, so I, I I really have to thank UEFA for uh, you know looking for the whole system, not just the um, you know top five league benefits. So interesting, this you know this idea that uh, one controversial idea for some people that he has is that it's not just the Champions League solidarity rights that should be shared out amongst sort of European football. 
but also that um, you know why not yeah the Premier League's international TV rights for example you're saying to me if um, Finland pays a, a sum of money for the international TV rights which is much more they pay for the the, 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 the local Finnish leagues rights shouldn't the Premier League give percentage of that as solidarity back to the country from which that territory which they which uh, which pays it but i mean that that that's a uefa and eca talking point from 2019 um when we started this round of champions league reform talks at the time when you know that's locking in 24 teams year on year that was the that was the pushback on the european leagues as uh resistance to that ECA-UEFA plan, the original plan for changing the Champions League format, was why don't your league members pay more in solidarity? So it's not just um, those guys in Europe. I remember talking to Amadou Pinnock, the um, former outgoing president of the Nigerian Football Federation, and and he was talking about um, this as well, but from a different standpoint. He was saying, we send all of our gifted young players to your continent, to your country. You, you then bank all this money off the back of this talent we've reared can we get so everyone wants uh, a bit of the a slice of the premier league's massive income but the reality is it ain't going to happen is it i mean maybe the premier league will do some the odd bits of development but it's almost a moot conversation graham something you you put on twitter the other day was really interesting and and martin where you are is kind of the point there you are there in istanbul for the launch of the champions league draw i think you were there at the draw on thursday and there isn't a team from turkey uh, Graham, that graphic you you put up, there isn't a team from the east at all, is there this year? The 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 map of the dots on the map of the thirty two teams is just so loaded towards the west, and even even the eastern European country teams teams from eastern the old eastern European countries that are there, like Victoria Pilsen. and uh, Dinamo Zagreb, still seem to be you know neighbouring Western Europe. But yeah, the countries like Bulgaria, Azerbaijan, um, that have been um, in champions, had Champions League teams in, in recent years. They're just nowhere to be seen this year. And Greece and Turkey, a big, big gap uh, that just leaves Maccabi Haifa isolated in about 2,000 kilometres of empty space. And there they are. But 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, we would see Olympiakos and Fenerbahce and Galatasaray year after year in the Champions League, they were there representing those countries. Maybe we thought their Champions League money then distorted their domestic league. Now in Turkey, we see more turnover. It seems to be more competitive. Basaksa here had a year. Trabzonspor were in there this year. But maybe if you win only one year of your domestic league, you don't have a chance to build that foundation to be a successful team. And then you find you're knocked out in the qualifying rounds. You haven't even got a team uh, in the Champions League group stage. So you know, what's better, having one team or two teams dominate and be in the Champions League every year, but you have a, a competitive domestic league and then they don't, they're not strong enough to get into the Champions League group stage the next year. And we have a hugely uh, stacked Western European Champions League group stage this year. Someone who's been out here in Istanbul is Nasser El-Khalifi, um, chairman of the ECA, president of Paris Saint-Germain, UEFA executive committee member, Head of B in Sport, um, and uh, Tarek, you've uh, I think you've sort of nettled him somewhat this week by um, pointing out all these various roles and the fact that he possibly has been, got a bit of an easy ride from UEFA. 
Yeah, well, just committed a bit of journalism and all hell seems to have broken loose and you, you kind of succinctly placed him in, in, in those roles and that, that was the point of the story, really, that um, this man with the multiple hats, particularly the, um, the being one, funny enough, because he's, I think, currently or in previous years, UEFA's biggest customer, as um, being sports, this Qatari broadcaster, it has spent billions on buying rights from from UEFA and and other leagues. So it's weird that your customer is is sat there on your board, um, and and then you wonder how you treat these people who are so close to you. So something that I I kind of focused on, there was an incident at the Real Madrid. Uh, PSG Champions League game in March. It was a very high stakes game, round of 16. And there was a lot of tension around that game. Of course, Nasser Al-Khalifi emerged as a heroic figure after Super League, saying PSG had no part in it, helped UEFA crush it. uh, And Real Madrid were the people pushing this. So there was a lot at stake. Uh, PSG were pretty much coasting to victory. They were winning for, I think, 70 of the... uh, uh, but three quarters of the of, of the two game series there, and then thanks to Kareem and Benzema, Real Madrid knock PSG out, and then all hell breaks loose. Nasser Al Khalifi, according to the referee, stormed into the room, into the referee's room, broke a linesman's flag, according to the referee's report. And you know these things happen. It's a very passionate game, and normally UEFA investigates these things, and then after a couple of weeks we get a decision. It would have been maybe a one game ban or something like that. But in Nasser's case. It was months it dragged on and it was a late on a Friday night in June after the season was finished where where it was announced what had happened. There was no mention of Nasser Al-Khalifi. Uh, his then um, former assistant, uh, Leonardo, got a one-match ban, had been fired by PSG. And I found it very strange that this wasn't normal. And then put, put against all these um, hats he has, I felt maybe there's some issues of conflict of interest or at least a... The idea of it, anyway. So that was the story. Um, Graham, you've 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 asked questions about this before, haven't you? Well, the day that um, that NASA joined the UEFA Executive Committee it was the um, UEFA Congress in Rome, 2019. Also, the day that Alexander Cheferin was re-elected president. And in the press conference that day, he was asked about the conflicts of interest. A very broadly focused question about the conflicts of interest of having uh, NASA on the on the UEFA Executive Committee. And he answered in a very narrowly focused way, saying, well, the Exco doesn't discuss TV rights, so he won't be involved in any broadcast deals that we may do with BN. But that conveniently, that answer conveniently ignored the fact that, well, there were conflicts of interest potential that we could see then in relation to financial fair play cases, the leadership structure of the ECA, and as we've seen, a disciplinary case where, you know, we only have circumstantial evidence looking from the outside, but it looked for all the world like special favour, special treatment for the PSG president. So there are two things that, that struck me in the reporting. One, I spoke to Alex Phillips, who was at UEFA for 17 years. It's um, head of compliance was his last job in 2019. And he told me that he'd, he'd actually raised this point about conflicts of interest and, and NASA's appointment to the board inside UEFA, and, and he was ignored. And that, that struck me as being um, a very um, significant thing to, to, to say publicly. And he also said that um, UEFA has politicised this disciplinary function. Again, a really strong um, 
point for someone who would be an insider to say. And that, that kind of is worrying. And it kind of tells you perhaps what one suspects that football is a is a club and these relationships, it's it's sort of you know, directed by relationships and some of these relationships are more important. So you you kind of smooth things over. And I guess if you're a small or middle-sized club or, or one of the outsiders, it almost feels like it's not a level playing field. Because there are conflicts of interest in having like somebody from the European leagues on the UEFA Exco and some, and some and, you know, ECA members on the, on the Exco as well. It's sort of bound to arise. So I think that's when you're sort of duty-bound to... Make absolutely sure that that there is no special favours, but it just it just like undermines the authority of the whole organisation. Yeah, I mean, just just to his credit as well, this none of this is a, or any of these stories were right. They're never personal, and that's where this stuff gets a bit funny for me. Is like if you meet Nasser Al Khalifi, he's a very uh, nice guy, so he comes across very well, charming, talks to people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the weird thing is whenever these kind of stories get written, everyone says, oh, it's an attack on this person or this club. But it's, we're talking about a systemic issue here. It's a problem with the system. And, and it is, I guess, our job to point out. And I must say, having written it and published it, we were told that we would have no more um, access to, to, to PSG or be in and, and no interview requests from them. And as, um, I think that's a shame. Um, I'll probably leave it at that from from that from that point of view because it it's a weird way of working. It's it's also strange. It's, it's, it's kind of a Streisand effect working in this case because had there been a disciplinary case, it wouldn't have been a big sanction. You know, maybe it had to sit out one game from the stands. But you could have argued, okay, it was a heat of the moment thing. Who among us hasn't lost our cool in the wrong situation? But the way it's been handled shines a light on the governance. Uh, processes at UEFA, which is an institutional problem going forward, draws more attention to the case. And at a time when, you know, they're fighting clubs in the European Court of Justice and, you know, the next dispute with FIFA is just around the corner. Why would you allow this speculation about the integrity of your processes to to spread like this? It's it's just curious. Talking of uh, FIFA there, Graham, did you uh, notice who was watching the boxing in Saudi Arabia at the weekend alongside Mohammed bin Salman and the Crown Prince? There was quite the uh, sports politics going on at that boxing game. It wasn't just the uh, the FIFA president and um, there was the president of, of swimming who has, uh, you know, a main Olympic sport who has... Uh, other ambitions for leadership roles within the uh, the wider Olympic family. It was really quite the place to be to be watching the uh, the heavyweight fight uh, at the weekend. There was also um, uh, Gianni's deputy, Matthias Grafstrom, was there, and he, maybe it was the way the picture was taken. He looked so forlorn and, and a little bit sad. Uh, maybe it was just the way because it was such a great fight. I hope he uh, once the once the uh, kind of action got going, he got more revved up. Um, but uh, Matthias and Gianni have been on the, on on their tours and have been to Saudi Arabia numerous times. Martin um, Graham. There was then a piece by uh, someone Martin talked to for a piece in the, in the in the Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago on about Saudi Arabia. James Dorsey, this academic based in Singapore, he he speculated around the same time as as that fight actually that Saudi Arabia was um, mulling another bid or another try at trying to get a, a group together 
to host the 2034 World Cup. Uh, do you think? Do you think that's that's the plan here? That's the relationship. Well, I think since then it's we've had um, the, the Saudi sports minister say that hosting the Olympics is their ultimate ambition, and then there was sort of reports came out talking about a sort of three continent bid. I think Graham, is that right? Yes, uh, Saudi Arabia from Asia, Egypt from Africa, and Greece and Turkey from from Europe, which is very creative, a, 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 bit, a, bit, a bit unusual. I'm not exactly sure what would be the uh, incentive for UEFA to uh, sign off on that kind of, of project. But, you know, anything seems possible for the future, and it seems to be you need to have some sort of peacemaking political function to to get uh, to get initial attention but when when for 2030 especially when there is a you know a solid european bid from spain portugal uh, a very emotional pull of going back to south america for the centenary world cup why this saudi arabia anchored case for 2030 should force its way into the picture i think okay maybe have a discussion for 2034 but surely not for 2030 i think the why graham is uh... An easy one, isn't it? I mean, it's very rich, and we can just stop there. Um, but the um, the the idea that um, Saudi's focused on uh, on on the Olympics, Martin, reminds me of um, many many years ago. Actually, when I first started covering this this beat, one of the first events I had to cover was something called Sport Accord, uh, and it was in in Athens in two thousand and eight. And there was another country that said its primary focus was hosting the Olympic Games, not the Football World Cup. Um, and we'll be going there in November and December for the World Cup. So <laughs> I guess, you know, there is a, a tried and trusted path here. Yeah, Qatar tried, didn't they? A couple of Olympic bids and they, they never actually got to the stage where they were allowed to have a vote. I think the, the executive board of the IOC blocked that. Basically, because of the, the timing, they were trying to push it into October because of the temperature in the IOC wasn't having that. Um, but can you honestly imagine another Winter World Cup, the European leagues accepting that they're going to be disrupted again? I can imagine the European leagues not accepting it, I'm not, but I can imagine that it's, someone will try. I mean, you could argue Australia would be very interested if there was a, an opportunity for that. But I think you know we touched. You've touched on this on the pod in the past. The way that climate change is going and the temperatures in most of your potential hosts in June, July. That if this if this World Cup in November, December is good and the players enjoy it and say they feel fresh, then I think yeah we will have bidding in the future for a November, December. Yeah, I also think we're in this midst of this big calendar debate. Again, it sounds quite prosaic and boring, but it's very, very important. Where what Arsene Wenger and FIFA are trying to reformulate the the global football calendar, and you know, for me, there are some bits of it and some of Arsene Wenger's ideas that aren't aren't bad and should be looked at. One of those is 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 this shaping the calendar in a way that um, you could host a World Cup in 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 October and in, in the summer because of the, the way they're going to sh- shape the international breaks. I don't know if it will happen. I think, as you said, a lot of pushback from clubs, uh, European clubs, because there's so much television money at stake around the, the, the winter period. 
But, you know, being devil's advocate here, um, you know, FIFA's role, it's not Europe's game. Um, and it just you couldn't, the idea that because the weather's not good at a certain time of year, the tournament can only be played then seems a little unfair if you if you really think about it and think, well, you know, other others want to host these tournaments. They should be given the right. But, you know, football maybe um this is the push and pull, uh, guys, isn't it? Everyone's fighting for their slice. Yeah, I mean, I mean interestingly that you know the Turkish FA people I spoke to are sort of unaware of anything about being connected with it with the World Cup bid, and I think the Greeks the same. Um this is very much a sort of government-level contact, I think. Um, the Turkish FA are very much focused on the, their Euros bid. They're, they're going to go for 2028 and 2032. Um, there's some considerable pressure, I think, to be away for them to step aside from 2028, leave it for the British and Irish to have a sort of commercially successful event there but uh, they say they're not going to do that full steam ahead for 2028 um interesting if this is a sort of political move that they can sort of exert some pressure on uefa so that they can almost be guaranteed 2032 because italy and the, the other main bidders for that and they have huge infrastructure challenges i think i feel like those infrastructure challenges could be partly solved by hosting uh Euro 2032, and then you start having a national project to break through the, you know, infamous red tape and bureaucracy and construction projects in Italy. But you know, Italia 90 was the catalyst for a generation of stadium upgrades. That's a long time ago. Now they need another round of uh, stadiums. Not owning your own modern football stadium is one reason why the Serie A clubs have maybe fallen behind in revenue earning behind uh, the English clubs for sure. So I think, yeah, the, within UEFA, I'm sure they would love to have Italy hosting again, and Italy would like to push forward some stadium projects. But I feel like a Turkish Turkey hosting the Euro is surely something that's going to happen in our lifetime. It seems to be, you know, Turkey bidding for it, coming so close, or passing up good opportunities, something we've you know, lived through for year after year in our careers. How many of those bids have we written about? It has to happen sometimes. Almost feels mean. Yeah, this is the sixth and seventh time <laughs> tournament that they're trying to get one other saudi related issue which has come up this week golf which we've talked about golf quite a lot but um and live golf a saudi funded breakaway competition there's been quite a significant development this week yeah we've been following this quite closely rob and i went to the first event in st albans the saudi series and you know there's been so it's almost a, it's described as a hostile takeover of golf. The PGA Tour has, has you know, um, launched legal proceedings or defending itself from legal proceedings after after banning the the, the kind of uh, breakaway golfers. But we've been waiting for what it will actually do practically in response. And this week we we got it. It started actually with a flight that Tiger Woods took to Delaware. He had Ricky Fowler with him. Uh, and and these twenty two golfers had a had a, had a meeting. It's something quite rare, actually, the closed meeting, um, to, to 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 make a plan for the future of golf. And and this week we 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 we've seen the the first signs of that. Um, and some of it looks very much like live golf. If I, if I'm honest, is going to be um, bigger purses, twenty million dollar purses. That seems very similar to live golf. There's going to be 
500,000 uh, upfront guarantees. The first time PGA's, uh, PGA Tours ever paid any guarantees. They're going to be um, giving them uh, travel budgets, all, the, all these things that kind of seem similar in a way to, to what Live Golf has done. And the other, the other things, Jay Monahan, the, the PGA Tour Commissioner, a few months ago, he, he said, um, the one thing we can't compete with Saudi on is money and, and we, we won't be able to, to match them with money. And to me, it seems that's exactly what they've done. Increased purses, guaranteed funding, as I said. And, and, and this new, new event, Graham, have you heard about this new, new, new event, stadium event? I've been reading about it. I mean, I, I have to say I'm not an avid follower of golf, but I was curious enough to see what it is. And it's, you know, stunningly different as a proposition. So you know, virtual reality shots off the tee, live action sort of pitching and putting, I suppose, <laughs> for, the, uh, for the sort of the amateur fan like me. Um, but it's contained within a stadium. It brings fans closer to the to the action. It's genuinely different, which in a way, I mean, if you're not an avid f- watcher of golf like me, the live proposition is not actually different enough to be noticeable. It's still 18 holes taking a few hours going around the same course, whereas this Tiger Rory proposition is genuinely different. And if they're proposing to play in this, you know, Monday night slot when it's, you know, the NFL is not occupying with Monday night football, it's not competing with your traditional four-day weekend event. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, with these types of competitions, always the risk of you attract new audiences by annoying your core fan base. But I have to say the details were more grabbing than the uh, than the live proposition. Yeah, Graham, all, all very interesting. But also, I think what was very clear, Jay Monahan, the um, PGA Tour commissioner, he basically said that those guys who've gone and taken that money are, are have gone. So whatever happens, these new formats, this, this, um, this, this player impact program as well, which is going to give tens of millions of dollars to stars like uh, Woods and McElroy, that is not for them. They, there is no way back for these guys. He kind of said, we don't want their money and we don't want their players. So this, this is this, uh, this fissure we've seen, this break, from golf feels permanent for now. Uh, and I think that's going to be fascinating in years to come. If those players, uh, you know, um, Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson, you know, some of the, some big names, uh, Bryce DeChambeau, they're not coming back. And I wonder what golf's going to look like in two, three years, even with these changes. Just to go back to talking about Saudi Olympic bids, Graham, what's your, what's your view on the whole 2036 Olympics, where that's going. Well, we talked earlier about Doha never being able to get on the slate um, in recent years, but I think that was partly because NBC had said to the IOC, it must happen in this slot in July, August. If Saudi or Qatar was to have a better chance, then that needs to change. The NBC... uh, Contract TV contract with the IOC runs through Brisbane in 2032, I think. So there is scope to do something different in the calendar in 2036. But to me, it's a little bit curious that you know the, the IOC has lived through you know a problematic decade or de- a decade of problematic Olympics with you know Russian doping, um, you know 
bribery and vote buying in the bidding, and that's been changed. The pandemic and you know really, really what ended up being quite a joyless uh, Olympics for us to cover in Beijing this year, and. But the IOC, to its credit, has created this decade ahead of clear blue water, you know, back to the traditional hosts, France, Italy, America, Australia. And OK, so the next big decision they've got is for 2036. Now, they, the IOC, they can't stop people saying we want a bid for this. But who's coming forward with the Saudis saying they want to do it? Germany, after finishing hosting a successful multi-sport European championships also last weekend, said, well, maybe we want to do it. Oh, what? the centenary of the Nazi Olympics? Really? Is that is that is that is that the road we want to go down? If they'd have said, okay, but we're only thinking of twenty forty, well, perhaps. And we have, but then again, the IOC president a few weeks ago visiting, and he's not the only one to visit Viktor Orban in Budapest, which at the moment, when Hungary looks like you know the closest ally of Russia during the war within within the European Union. You know, the IOC has gone through its difficult decade, created a calm decade ahead, and the options for 2036 at the moment are looking you know, less than ideal. Maybe this is where India steps in uh, to the world. But yeah, it's the 2036 Olympics bidding is taking yeah, curious turns at the moment. Yeah, the IOC session next year is in Mumbai, I think. Um, I wonder if that India option is sort of building a bit of momentum. Got Olympics in India, good for you, Terry. I just think more broadly, like the Olympics is always, um, I say more more than the, the football World Cup in a way. It's such a kind of power projection event for countries, and you know Graham's listed those. And you know we talk about India. And if you look a little bit closely at what's happening in India right now, never before in since India became a democracy in 1947 have we seen as much nationalist rhetoric as we have in India right now with the current Modi government, the BJP there, when you when you kind of place the, the current Indian political scene next to the ones that, you know, Graham's just described, it makes perfect sense. But for me, would also create some of the same worries about what it would be used for by... by like the Olympics for me is kind of um, linked to regimes writ large more, more than anything else what what do, what do you think do you, do you do you you know china graham you mentioned them is is that is that the point of the olympics now it's certainly become that because if you're you're united by that kind of project then it unlocks the billions of uh, dollars you need to, to make it happen and all the you know, coordination at all levels of government you need to make a successful olympics um it's it's interesting because you know under Thomas Bach, the IOC, has reshaped bidding and the process of awarding Olympics, um, which is, you know, it's not really a vote anymore. It's all done by the administration. They have it in their gift. So it'll be interesting interesting to see which of these interested parties for 2036 the IOC encourages. You know, the IOC hasn't publicly said they are interested um, in the Saudis or a German centenary bid. And I, I, I check whether, you know, these sports leaders who go to, there's all number of sports leaders who've gone to uh, Saudi Arabia in the last year or two, photographed, meeting with uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Not so sure that Thomas Bach has met him or there are any, any whether Thomas Bach's not really aligned with uh, MBS. He, I don't think we've seen any official encouragement from the, uh, the IOC for a Saudi bid. But 
that that can change. But also, is you know Thomas Bach's twelve years as IOC president is coming to an end soon, and should he be leading the uh, decision for the twenty thirty six, which might be a, the biggest decision that his successor in twenty twenty five should be taking to make their to make their mark. So maybe we're just going to have a sort of a a phony war for the next three years on who could be the twenty thirty six host. But but India clearly that uh, session next May in Mumbai in a venue owned by you know the billionaire Ambani family who's you know the who's Mrs Ambani's an IOC member it's clearly set up as a showcase for India's olympic ambitions and a big day for ukrainian football this week um with the return of, of football there Graham. yeah whatever your political views as a football fan it's incredibly heartwarming to see the ukraine premier league which completely stopped obviously by the war uh, last season they kicked off on Tuesday, which was National Flag Day. There were more games on Wednesday, Independence Day, in empty stadiums. But the first game, Shakhtar against Metalist 1925, in the Olympic Stadium in Kiev, where you know we've been for some great, uh, the biggest games in European football in recent years. And there they were. They were back. In some games, the players had to go off into the bomb shelters. I think one game took four hours to complete because of the air raids, sirens that went off. But Ukraine, Ukrainian football is back. And there's the prospect of uh, yeah, the Ukraine Classico coming to to London later this year. No, no fans there. You, you said quite quite rightly, given the unsafe uh, environment. And God, the the idea of running out on a football field with a threat of an air raid as well. I, I can only uh, dread to think what it must be like for the players. But there is that 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 sense that they're doing it for for the nation, and it's a it's a it's an important uh, part of the the government's efforts to keep the the population um feeling positive and and also to show ukraine to the world um there were media there though from around the world um there were there were officials broadcasters were allowed as well um i was surprised that there were no senior officials from from football though fifa has talked about uh this ukraine issue at some length uefa too uh they have got these um Ukrainian flags, I think, and and uh, solidarity flags. The women's Euros, I noticed this summer, but there was didn't seem like there was anyone there. Did, is that is that right? Well, I, I certainly didn't see any uh, any of that presence. I mean, maybe there's a you know, football politicians like this probably scared of doing anything which might seem that like they're sort of taking sides against Vladimir Putin, perhaps. But um, that's you know, we are talking about. Has <laughs> been. As Rob has mentioned before in previous pods, you know, Gianni Infantino, who's just got, a, sort of got given a medal by Vladimir Putin, so maybe he, uh, last thing he wants to do is to seem to be taking sides. Well, football has taken a side by UEFA and FIFA banning all Russian teams from its international competitions and winning uh, an appeal at CAS to uphold that. So they kind of have taken sides. And if it was a very low-profile visit, if they were there to uh, in Kiev to endorse these games, but yeah, it feels like this is something that football could have shown solidarity with Ukraine for. Right, guys, uh, great to catch up. 